Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Oxford Baptist Church with our pastor, Andy Brown. We pray you'll be blessed as you apply these truths to your life. Would you mind taking your Bible, please, this morning and join me in Matthew chapter 5. And we are going today to finish the Beatitudes. We've been looking at these Beatitudes now for over 10 weeks. We've been looking at the characteristics that define a believer. We've been looking at these ways that our Lord has been forming us, His new humanity, into His own likeness. Last week we looked at verses 10 through 12, and of course today we're going to look at them again. Because in the midst of this word, this last word for us about the Beatitudes, there's this word about persecution. It's a heavy word. It's a word that may be a little bit surprising to us, but it's a sure word from our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we come to the close of the Beatitudes, Christ, He really gives us an encouraging word about the expectations that we should expect from what will happen when we are formed into His likeness. Now remember this, the Beatitudes are these blessed statements. They are the characteristics of the twice-born. They are the characteristics of those who have been born again. And so the people of whom these characteristics are true of are blessed of God. But as this last beatitude tells us, they're blessed of God but persecuted by the world. And let me say this. This is the Word of God. This is God's Word to us. He tells us of all these characteristics that are true of us, and this last one, if we want the first one, the second one, the third one, the fourth one, the fifth one, the sixth one, the seventh one, well, we have to go ahead and put the last one to say that it is true of us as well. This beatitude, this is our calling. Never forget, never neglect this truth. That these blessed statements are blessed by God, but misunderstood and persecuted by the world. I love the way that Peter says it plainly. Peter, who was an apostle of Jesus Christ, we all know Peter, right? He's the one with a loud mouth. We all know Peter. But Peter, here's what he said to a group of Christians that he was writing to in the words of the 21st verse of the second chapter of his first epistle. Listen to what he says. To this you have been called. Now he's talking about endurance. He's talking to believers who have been scattered throughout the empire for various reasons. Many of them are scattered because of persecution. He's talking about faithfully enduring no matter what. And by the way, there's nothing that will test mine and your endurance and being willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. So Peter tells him very plainly in chapter 2 and verse 21 in 1 Peter, he says, to this you have been called. Now listen to what he says next. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His. Some of you might be saying already at the outset of this sermon, you may say, wait just a minute, 
all of these blessed statements have been leading up to persecution? This is what the Christian life is about? Persecution? Is this what the Christian life is all about? And the answer to that is absolutely not. Look closely at verse 10 in chapter 5. All of these blessed statements have been leading to persecution. No, look closer. These blessed statements are leading to rejoicing. Rejoicing. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those, it says in verse 12, rejoice and be glad. Now let's be honest this morning. It's one thing to expect persecution. It's another thing to endure persecution. But it's quite another thing for our Lord to be commanding us to rejoice in the midst of persecution. But look, look at what he says in verse 12. He didn't say, think about rejoicing. Rejoice and be glad. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Let's read the Bible. Let's read them all together. And because it's the end of our sermon series, would you stand together in honor of the reading of God's word? Matthew chapter 5, the first 12 verses. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Would you pray with me? Father, we've come to this moment. What a moment of exaction. Where Lord, You are exacting in our lives, showing us clearly what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Thank You for such a moment. We pray that the Holy Spirit, through the ministry of Your Word preached, would penetrate the coldness of our hearts and form us into Christ-likeness. In Jesus' name we pray. All of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Now here we have this word from God. This is such an extended section of Scripture. This word is so delicate for us that our Lord gives an extension on this last beatitude. Of all the beatitudes, the Lord says the most about this one. Because I know, well, He knows, my heart and your heart, and he knows that this is probably that one that is most exacting, most precise when it comes to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so he knew 
That we would need not just one word from Him, but we would need His Word to come to us not just once, but many times. So that this Word could come to us and comfort our hearts and conform us into the likeness that He desires to see us in. And He tells us this word of rejoicing. And be glad. Even in the midst of a difficult situation. And if we're honest this morning, we see this story of rejoicing no matter the circumstances, all through Scripture. The first thing that James writes to believers who were scattered is to count it all joy when they encounter various trials. We see it in the book of Acts when the apostles are arrested and then they are beaten by the religious authorities because they are claiming Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus has risen from the grave, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is coming. He demands all men to repent. They are arrested and they're beaten by the religious authorities. And then the Bible tells us in Acts that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Paul, we learn after being stoned and drug out of Lystra and left for dead, he went back into the same city that he was drug out of and he encouraged the brothers. And as I read this story in Acts, I can almost see it. Here Paul is. He's been stoned. He has got the bruises of the, of the rocks probably still on his face. The blood still probably matting down some of his hair if he had any. And here is Paul looking at these believers, these newly formed believers he tells them, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And then we read about the saints in Hebrews 11 who suffered. The Bible says of them that the world was not worthy of them. And then Hebrews chapter 11 builds up to Hebrews chapter 12, where in chapter 12, after this example that's set before us, Hebrews chapter 12 gives us this encouragement to endure no matter what. And the reason I love Hebrews chapter 12, after giving us this wonderful example of endurance, Hebrews chapter 12 comes in and the Bible tells us the reason for endurance. Listen to what it says. It says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Listen to this next part. Who? For the joy set before Him endured the cross. For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame. And this one is seated, the Bible says, at the right hand of the throne of God. This same Jesus who rejoiced in the face of persecution, this same Jesus who rejoiced, calls us this morning to rejoice and be glad even if we are reviled and persecuted because of His account and His namesake. And so if our Lord commands us to rejoice during persecution, then we need to do our diligence this morning as God's people to find out why, Lord, would You call us to rejoice even in the midst of persecution? What are the reasons for rejoicing? So today as we look at this passage, I want to give you two reasons Two reasons why the joy that we have in Jesus is inextinguishable. Two reasons why the joy we have in Jesus cannot be extinguished. And so why should we rejoice in persecution? Number one, and I hope you write this down. Number one, 
persecution authenticates our identity. Persecution authenticates who we are in Christ. Never forget this. Never forget that at the centerpiece of Christianity is a cross. At the centerpiece of Christianity is a cross. Now, it's not just a cross. It's an empty cross of one who was there, who paid the penalty for mine and your sin. The one who took the blame, bore the wrath of God. The one who satisfied the wrath of God. The perfect, spotless Lamb of God who came into this world seeking and saving lost ones and allowed Himself to be hung on a tree with nails. His arms stretched out. His hands pierced by nails. Bearing the weight of the world's sin. It's not just a cross. It's an empty cross with an empty tomb. With a Savior who is now, when we look at that cross, we remember what He has done. We remember where He is. He is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. And we also remember that this One who once came, once died for our sins, once rose again, is the same One who's going to come again and judge the living and the dead. But at the centerpiece of our confession as Christians is a cruel cross. We can learn so much there. That here is the story of Joseph where Joseph in the Old Testament in Genesis is cast into the middle of a pit and then God raises him up to sit in the heights of Pharaoh's chambers and then his brothers come to get grain from him and then he reveals himself. And you remember what Joseph told his brothers, what you intended for harm, God intended for good. This is why we wear little crosses around our necks. This is why we have crosses at the top of our buildings because here is what God says to us in the midst of persecution through the cross that though the enemy may desire evil, God can take evil and mean it for good for us. But at the centerpiece of our Christian faith, and this is why it is a centerpiece, it is a cruel, cruel cross. And I love what Jesus says as He is facing the cross, as He is encouraging His disciples in the farewell discourse. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated Me before it has hated you. If you were of the world, Jesus said, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And I have never been more encouraged in my life to know that the world may hate me, but Jesus loves me. But because you are not of the world, I chose you, therefore the world hates you. And then he says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant, listen to this, listen to this, listen to this. He says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours. And one of the most powerful ways that this has been played out is we have seen people taking the, the word of our Lord. We've seen individuals in church history taking the sure word of our Lord and enduring despise, enduring being reviled, enduring shame, enduring persecution, all because they know that Jesus loves them. And that settles everything for them. But one of the most powerful books on discipleship is a book called The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Let me tell you a little bit about Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a Christian pastor in Germany. 
during World War II. He was actually arrested because he tried to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Bonhoeffer, a Christian pastor, a Christian professor, Bonhoeffer was hanged to death just days before his prisoner of war camp was liberated by the Americans. So the Germans knew that the Americans were coming and so they got rid of every other prisoner that they wanted to get rid of and Bonhoeffer was on the list and so they hung him to death. But Listen to what Bonhoeffer said about persecution in the cost of discipleship. Listen to what he says. Suffering is a badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Following Christ means pas passiva, suffering because we have to suffer. Suffering because we have to suffer. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. And then listen to this next part. It is in fact a joy and a token of His grace. John Stott went so far as to say that persecution elicits joy because listen to this. He says it is a token of genuineness. It is a certificate of Christian authenticity. And there is nothing in this world that will ensure that our mind is set on things above like persecution. But not just any persecution. Persecution for righteousness' sake. There is nothing more exacting in our faith than being called to suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. You want to know what's in you? Just squeeze. See what it is that comes out. The old pastors used to say, what's down in the well will come up in the bucket, right? We've all heard that. And if what Jesus says is true, and by the way, it always is true, persecution for righteousness' sake, that is, persecution for the right reasons, persecution for the reasons that would honor God, Jesus says that persecution for righteousness' sake assures us. It gives us this confidence of God's work in our lives. You know what God's doing? By calling us to persecution, by calling us to endure things for righteousness, you know what He's doing? He is calling, He is directing all of our affections to Christ-likeness. That's what He's doing. When we face persecution, for the right reasons, for righteousness' sake. It tells our own souls and it tells the whole world that our hope is not on the temporaries of this life, but our hope is in the overwhelming glory that awaits us in the glory of Him as we take every circumstance in our life, good, bad, ugly, and we learn to hope in Jesus. This is why this is so strange and mysterious. You and I, we love Jesus. We are affectionate about Him. And every day, the good thing about being a Christian is, listen, here's just the truth. This is, listen carefully. This is the truth. You don't love Him as much today as you probably will tomorrow. 
Next week, you probably won't love him as much as you will three or ten years from now. The mysterious thing that our, our Lord has called us to is, is, is the life that He came into. Remember, John tells us that He came to His own and His own received Him not. And we're thinking as those of us who love Jesus more than we did yesterday, we're thinking, why in the world would anyone not love Jesus? But people don't. For whatever reason, they don't. So God has mysteriously, and, and I, I dare not know the, the, the mysteries of God, and I don't even claim to, but in some way we're looking through a glass dimly and darkly. We're trying to understand these things. And, and the last word that He has for us about these blessed statements is that God uses persecution somehow. Not that He causes it, but that He overcomes it. And there is nothing that will test your faith like persecution. And let's be honest this morning, there are all types of persecutions. Some of us may be called to die a martyr's death. Maybe. Some of us may not be. I pray none of us are. There are all kinds of persecutions. And we're not necessarily talking about being burned at the stake. Persecution may come in a simple form like you standing for righteousness' sake and your family ridiculing you because you won't go here or there with them. Or maybe you, instead of pursuing an ambitious career as a doctor or a lawyer or whatever the case may be, getting into the family practice, you become a Christian and now your life is called to be a missionary or an evangelist or preacher. Or maybe you face the ridicule of your own family because your own family doesn't believe like you do, but you're, you're, you're not willing to budge on the essential truthfulness of God's Word. Maybe because you're a Christian, you get skipped over in your job because of your particular stance on an issue that conflicts with your plain views of who Christ is. Or it could be something just as simple because look at the words of our Lord. He says, when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Anytime that happens, there's no scale of persecution. It's all persecution if it's persecution for righteousness' sake. Jesus expands our understanding of persecution. But listen closely. We're not simply talking about just being persecuted for the sake of being persecuted. We are talking about receiving persecution. How it is that we receive persecution. And that matters. Because persecution in the life of a believer is inevitable. But how we receive that persecution should be formed by the way that our Lord directs us to. And this is what our Lord's talking about. He's receiving persecution. And look at the command that our Lord gives us in verse 12. Look at what He says. What's He say? He says when we receive persecution, we are to receive it in a particular way. The way that we receive it is with rejoicing and gladness. We're talking about the feelings that are involved in persecution. It's one thing to be persecuted. It's another thing to rejoice in it. You see the difference? But the Lord isn't just after us being willing to give our outside gifts to Him. The Lord wants all of us. He wants your heart, your head, your hands, every part of you. He wants all of you. And so he, he deals with every part of us. And He says it's not just simply receiving persecution. It's how you receive persecution. And He calls us. Look at this high command that our Lord calls. Rejoice! 
and be glad. If we're suffering for righteousness, then we are suffering for Christ's sake. What does this mean? Listen to Peter again. I quoted him in the beginning. Listen to what Peter says. He says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Listen to what Peter says next. Listen, listen. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Now listen to this next part. How did he receive persecution? When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You remember what happened when Peter, they come to get Jesus. How many times has Jesus said, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to die. And then Peter says, no way. And then Jesus has to get real frank with Peter and That's funny, isn't it? Frank with Peter. He has to get real frank with Peter and he just has to say, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Remember that? No one ever wants to be told that by Jesus, by the way. Never want to be told that's not good. Peter takes out his sword and chops off the ear of Malchus. Jesus takes up the ear of Malchus. Puts it back on and tells Peter, put your sword away. Those who live by the sword die by it. Did you not know? that I have all the angels of heaven at my disposal, and I could call them at just an instant. Let me do what I do. See, there's all these obstacles in the way of Jesus. When He's coming to be baptized by John, John's like, no, no, I don't want to baptize you. Jesus says, baptize me. When here Jesus is going to the cross, here Peter is trying to stand in the way, and Jesus says, let me fulfill righteousness' sake. Let me do what I do to fulfill all righteousness. We're going to face persecution the way that Jesus did. With rejoicing and gladness. And you know what that means for us? It means no reviling. It means no retaliation. It means no resentment. Jesus is going to say this later, right? If as men and tough guys, we always want to dismiss this, you know, well... Turn the other cheek. Da, da, da. We always, no, no, Jesus didn't mean that. He meant this. But listen, Jesus says this. He says, if He slaps you on one side, turn the other side. That's what Jesus did. No reviling. No retaliation. No resentment. And I'll say this. Not having resentment is harder than not retaliating. Because you can hold it back, right? It's, it's like a little boy who was, uh, his mother told him to sit down, a little four-year-old, his mother told him to sit down. And through having conversation with the little boy, finally the little boy sat down and the little boy looked up at his mother and said, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. It's one thing, right, to, to not retaliate. It's one thing, to, but to have no resentment, that's a little harder. So what's the secret? What is our Lord calling us to? How do we not have resentment? And the only way to do that is to see people from the angle of the cross. And what did Jesus say from the cross? Father, forgive them. For they know not what they 
And I hope that you have a complete picture in your mind. We have Scriptures that help us. Psalm 22 tells us that His, his body is, is poured out. tells us that He can count all of His bones. Isaiah 53 speaks of the stripes that are on His body. We understand that He received the floggings. This is a gruesome picture of a man hanging on a cross. He said this as His body was laid open before them. Literally, He is naked, hanging in shame on a cross, bleeding out to death. And He says from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Listen closely. Jesus is not calling us to rejoice just for persecution. In other words, we're not supposed to go out and develop some martyr complex. We're not supposed to go out and seek persecution. That's not what our Lord is calling. The same Jesus who says this is also going to be the Jesus who prays in John, keep them from the evil one. We don't rejoice when we hear Christians being beheaded over in Africa. We don't rejoice in that. You know, the reason we don't rejoice in that, it's not about the Christians so much as it is the cause of Christ. Because we don't want the cause of Christ being hindered in any way. So we don't rejoice in persecution. We avoid persecution. But if persecution comes our way because of righteousness, the reason we rejoice is because in that moment of persecution, it is proof positive that we belong to Jesus. And in those moments, we have another opportunity for ourselves to have our faith refined as we hope not in the things that are seen, but in the things that are unseen. To this we have been called. Which brings us to number two this morning. Rejoice in persecution because... It authenticates our identity. And number two this morning, we rejoice in persecution because persecution makes our hope for heaven greater. I'm going to say something to you. And I hope that we agree with what's said. Christians are different. We're peculiar. Here we have Jesus saying, hey, you know what? It's almost like he's training us for boot camp and we have this pictured in our mind. Here Jesus is walking by us and here we have this disciple, faithful disciple being beat with a rod and Jesus comes over and says, Rejoice. Are you rejoicing in the face of persecution? Strange, isn't it? But this is our life. This is the, the world that Jesus invites us into. It's, a, it's His world. Listen carefully. Persecution comes with the friction that exists between a kingdom that is coming and a kingdom that is passing away. That's why there's persecution. Because the kingdom that's coming is not going to give up and the kingdom that is, is still here is not yet given up. Do you understand that? It's, this world, it, it is inevitable that Jesus is coming and so the world that is still here is resisting it as much as they can. And in that resistance, you know who falls by in that resistance? is me, it's you. It's those of us who are looking to the eastern sky and praying as we are taught in Revelation, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's why there's persecution. We're different. We who follow Christ are different, and I am all for keeping Christianity strange. I think that we should. Think about our confession. 
We believe, yeah, that people are raised back from the dead. Yes, we believe that. We go by a, a cemetery and we look at that cemetery. We look at it through the eyes that Christ has given us and we believe that every grave that's there is one day going to be empty. Can you imagine someone who's never heard that before? What? Are you serious? You say, well, it gets a little more strange. We also believe that one day the eastern sky is going to split. There's going to be a guy riding on a white horse and he's going to come back. You see? We're different. This is what we believe. This is the hope of our assurance. You and I, listen carefully, we are unlike everyone else who is not a Christian. Now listen, listen to me again. Don't be zealous and over extreme and don't, don't develop some complex and think, well, you know, we've got to be totally countercultural and all that because and then we're going to do all these strange things to make ourselves countercultural. We don't have to do anything other than preach the gospel to be countercultural. Believing that there is a king who's going to raise the dead, that's countercultural enough. We don't develop some complex because we know that we're strange, but what we do, we remember that we are strangers and aliens in this world. And if we are strangers and aliens in this world, we are to set our hopes not on things that are seen, but we are to set our hopes on that which is unseen. So the Bible encourages us to endure, and one of the ways that it does this is by giving us this account of those who we are certain that if the Bible says that they suffered for righteousness' sake, there's no reason for us to ask any counsel to venerate them as saints. We know that these who the Bible says suffered for righteousness' sake they suffered for righteousness' sake. And so it gives us, uh, setting before us all these examples of men and women who faithfully endured. And this is what Jesus is doing right here. Look at what He says. He's putting us in good company. Look at verse 12. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For listen to what He puts us in the company. He puts us in the stream of Christianity. And He says, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let me just say this as an aside. I don't have time to preach this message, but let's just, let me just say this as, an, as a side note. Mostly, the prophets were devoured by their own people. There were people who thought that they were seeking God, but they weren't. And that's another sermon for another day, but let me just say this, that sometimes persecution comes from within the walls of the religious establishment called the church. How many people do you know who have been hurt by the church? You know, that's not necessarily persecution for righteousness sake, but not in all cases, but sometimes persecution comes from within the religious establishment called the church. So he puts us in this goodly fellowship of the prophets. Listen to the way the Bible encourages us with the lives of, of others in Hebrews 11. It talks about Abraham just as an example. It says the Bible says of Abraham that Abraham was looking for a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And then listen to what the Bible says about him in Hebrews 11. He says all of these men, he said these all died in faith, not having received the things that were promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Don't you love this scene in Acts where Stephen is being stoned to death and he sees this vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father? These 
died in faith, not having received the things promised, but seen them, greeted them from afar, no matter their circumstances, greeted them from afar, and they acknowledged as they greeted them, listen to the Bible, they acknowledged that they were strangers and they were exiles on earth. That's why they greeted whatever came their way. The loudest way that we can speak is how we handle persecution. And the Bible says for people who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Are you looking for that city? Does your life prove it? It's one thing for us to say, yes, glory here, when we can shout hallelujah. But it's another thing when temptation comes our way. And if we have such a lasting city that it's coming, why do you and I spend so much time pursuing things that have no eternal significance. I know that many of you get tired of me saying it. You're thinking, preacher, you need to read more, but I can't get over the book, The Shadow of the Almighty by Elizabeth Elliot. It was first introduced to me by my professor Larry McDonald in a class in college at Troop McConnell College on Christian spirituality. This man had us read books that none of us wanted to read, like Augustine's Confessions and Shadow of the Almighty by Elizabeth Elliot. But in that book, that book is about Jim Elliot, written by his wife Elizabeth, and in that book is a story of a man who lived his entire life with the aroma of a better world that was coming. He was murdered, or we could say martyred while he was a missionary. His young bride would become a widow. And his nearly one-year-old daughter would grow up never knowing her father personally. He famously journaled an entry that is perhaps his most famous. And Here's what he said. And some of you already know it. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And oh, that our God would let us live this way. Oh, that our faith, this faith that God is calling us to receive persecution with rejoicing and gladness, that we would have this faith that it would permeate even the, the hardest and darkest of our hearts. And it would leave us Praying and pleading, Jesus, just give me Jesus. And understand that if God's going to give us this, then it's entirely countercultural to the world that we live in. Looking for a city that's coming where we don't even know all that there is about it. We have this, this picture in Revelation, but really we don't know what it's going to be like. But we know that we're going to spend more time there than we spend here. And that's totally counterculture because our world is dominated, I believe, by two sayings. The first, since it's so appropriate, it's prom season here in the spring. In high school, written on your yearbook was this saying, 
emferma. You know what it means? It means short-lived. And another saying that our world likes to take is carpe diem, seize the day. And we interpret that not in a Christian context. We take heaven out of the equation. And so we interpret that in a worldly context. And what does it mean? It means that everything is short-lived. The world is dominated by us enjoying the moment. Dominated by self. And so the world tells us that these sayings mean to live for the moment. But the Bible says something different. The Bible says that there is an eternity awaiting every man. There is a place prepared for every man. Either it's with God or without God. And that's for forever. And as we travel through this world, no matter what it is that we go through, whether it's sunny or partly cloudy or raining cats and dogs, Jesus calls us to fix our eyes on forever. And He gives us this thought. And there is nothing better than this thought that there is an eternity waiting for me. There is an eternity waiting for me with Jesus forever. Billy Graham told a story one time of a friend of his. This friend went through the the depression in the 1920s. He lost a job. He lost a fortune. He lost his wife. He lost his home. But this man believed in Jesus Christ. And this man, despite everything that was crumbling around him, tenaciously held to the hope that he had in Jesus. Even though he was depressed and cast down by circumstances. And Billy Graham tells the story. He says, one day this man, in the midst of his depression, he stopped to watch some men in the city doing stonework on this huge church in the middle of the city. And one of these men that he was watching was busy chiseling away a stone. So the man looked at the man chiseling the stone and he said, what on earth are you doing with that stone? And the workman stopped. He held the stone in his hand. He said, you see that up there? Pointing to the spire. He said, I'm preparing this down here so that it'll fit just right, right up there. And the man just said, as soon as the man said that, a flood of emotions poured over him, and he knew it was just like the Lord talking to him, telling him that God was shaping him for heaven. And all of his circumstances, whatever he faced, walking through this world who is hostile against any man who stands for Jesus, he knew that God was calling him to count it all joy in the midst of every circumstance. Because the Bible tells us that the light and momentary afflictions that we face are just that. No matter how extreme they may be, they are light and momentary because they are fixing for us They are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Rejoice and be glad. Look at this next phrase, and here's where I want to end. For your reward is great in heaven. Why do we rejoice? Because there is a reward waiting for us. Listen, listen, listen. Your reward is great 
in heaven. Heaven's not the reward. We are so preoccupied sometimes with heaven that we don't understand what it is God's calling us to. But there's something that's waiting for us in heaven. And the Bible doesn't tell us what it is. And I read this and I want to, I want to know a little more, Lord. I want to know what it is. What is this reward that you're calling us? What is this reward that's waiting for us in heaven? Why doesn't He just tell us? Why doesn't He tell us the specifics? You know the reason I think He doesn't tell us the specifics? The same reason when, when Pilate asked Him what is truth, He didn't answer. Because He is truth. I think that Jesus doesn't tell us because of His life. Because of His love. Because of the, His presence in all eternity. His life, His love, His presence is enough for everyone who has ever lived. And He gives us Himself. We aren't looking when we speak of heaven, we aren't looking at something out yonder, but we are praying the way that Jesus taught us to pray, Thy will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. So we are asking our Lord to bring the kingdom here, to do away with all of this and bring and establish His righteousness in us and everywhere that we see. So this morning, as, as we consider this passage, you're invited this morning. You're invited to join to join the choir of singers who have a song of inexpressible joy filled full of glory. You're invited this morning to cast all of your cares upon Him because He cares for you. You're invited to rejoice and be glad whatever comes your way. Maybe for some of you, when you, when you do this, when you place your hope in Jesus, maybe for some of you it's for the first time that you realize that I am not hoping in Jesus and I need to hope in Jesus. Maybe for others it's different. Maybe for others of you it's, it's not for the first time, but it's a renewed time. It's a time where you are, you're here and you're saying, you know, I'm going to put more of the hope today than I had yesterday and I'm going to ask my Lord to fill me with even more hope tomorrow than I even have today. Whatever the case may be, you're invited today to place all of your affections, all of your hopes, all of your longings to Jesus. And no matter who you are here today, do this before God. Do this before God. No matter who you are, don't leave today the same way that you came. Trust in Jesus all the more. Let's pray together. Thank You, Lord, for giving us something so great to set all of our hopes on. Thank You, Lord, for giving us Jesus. Oh, that You would give us grace to trust Him more. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. We pray God will use this message for His glory in your life. If you would like more information, please feel free to contact us at info at OxfordBaptistChurch.com. 
Oxford Baptist Church is located in Oxford, Georgia. If you're close, we'd love to meet you.